Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. Got a fun episode for you guys today. Number two in our Lockheed Martin Skunk Works That's series. That's right. If you haven't listened to the first episode recounting the origin and history of the company and Jake, secret program. Everybody's listened to that episode. If well, if you, sh- if you haven't, you, you better go back everybody's and Everybody's listened to it. It's, 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 it's awesome. fun. I've got a lot of messages being like, who's next? What's next? Let's do more. Like, get, I need it. And we're happy to bring you what you need, of course. We're here to give you the drugs that you want <laughs> and give you everything you have. So we have uh, we have Tucker Sinkle Hamilton on. He is a, uh, a pilot, obviously. He flew the F-35, has flown the F-35. He also flew the F-15. Yes, he's a very experienced pilot, works with experimental aircraft, and he has a deep knowledge of artificial intelligence. And he also pioneered a lot of safety programs. So For have- the F-35 and the development of the airframe itself. Yes, it's it's going to be an incredible interview. I hope you guys really enjoy it. We have, uh, before we get to that, what have you got for us? Petrobox is a monthly service made specifically for the automotive enthusiast. Each month, they carefully select items including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, publications. They send it all there to your doorstep. It's actually, it's kind of a curated selection of the latest and greatest gear in the industry. They take whatever's new as far as tools and products and include it to give it to you to try out every single month. There's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month at $19.95, while the Petrobox Premium gets you double the gear for $39.95 a month. Check them out at mypetrolbox.com. That's mypetrolbox.com. And be sure you use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get $6 off your first month's order. So, Chris, what do you know about the F-35 fighter? I know le- far less about the modern jets than I do the old ones. And the way we were going to do this was we're like, all right, let's pick our, our favorite jets, right? Let's pick our favorite ones and do a countdown of the best to the worst, right? right? We're just going to do... Honestly, you know what? I, they're all I, awesome. Not only that, but we found the people to talk to about these jets, and they do it way more justice than we can by just saying... Yeah, the, the U-2, it's cool. It was it flew high. It was really a high plane. Pictures. And we all know that we've got the Blackbird, we've got the U-2, we've got the F-117A, we have the F-35, there's the F-22, all of these great killer airplanes. But I, I just, I did a ton of work to try and dig up people that really know their shit and know what they're talking about. Right. And we so we have an F-35 pilot on, that's Cinco, and he's, it's a great interview. And then later in the week and later in the month, we have um, a U-2 pilot from the 50s and 60s. Right. We have an SR-71 pilot from the 50s and 60s who actually ended up being the uh, in charge of the Black World programs for the Air Force until 2013. how many, what was his budget, he said? Billions. He's like, yeah, so I had billions had to spend on. He $6 billion, dollars, if I recall correctly. For like he a was specific, in charge of. Yeah, just for like for a, a little program. specific project, yeah. Yeah. And then we have, uh, it, it, it's just incredible. So I, we've got all kinds of great things lined up for you. First one we're going to do is F-35, but I don't know, I don't know much okay, about so the F-35. So the tell F-35, me, why, why is this plane cool? It's considered the most advanced fighter jet in the world that's active right now that we know about. That we as know we about. know. Yeah, as we know. About. It is if, always if the we caveat. know this much, it, there's always something brewing at Skunk Works that we don't know about. But this was actually a product of the JSF program, or the Joint Strike Fighter Program, which was a development program intended to replace a wide range of existing fighter jets. The F-18, the F-15, the Harrier, all these existing jets that are out there doing specific purposes. Yep. They said, let's pool all the resources and create a Joint Strike Fighter that can do ground attack aircraft. It can do existing striking, fighting, vertical takeoff and landing, all that cool stuff in a single airframe. So it was a competition between the Boeing X-32 experimental model and the Lockheed Martin 
X35. And a final design was chosen, which was, of course, the X35, which the X designates experimental. Yeah, I was just going to say the F designates fighter usually, which we'll find out in other episodes, not always true. Right. But the X is experimental. Yes. So the X35 then became the F35. Now, the first F-35 variant is the F-35A. That's a conventional takeoff and landing variant. That's what you think of as just normal jet. It's an airplane. It, yes, it is. They're just, all airplanes. Just in the basic sense of airplane yes. so land this takeoff. Is, yeah. This is used uh, by the Air Force primarily. The F-35B is a short takeoff and vertical landing variant, which replaces the Harrier. Now, note, this is STOVL, short wasn't, takeoff wasn't and vertical landing. Wasn't the Harrier super unreliable? It crashed a lot. Yes, it frequently crashed, um, which is interesting. The Harrier did do vertical takeoff and landing. Yeah, like VTOL. straight up and down. This is STVOL, short takeoff, so it will still use its lift fan, but it still launches off of aircraft carriers. Okay. So that's what the uh, F-35B model is. The F-35C is a carrier-based variant that will replace the legacy F-18 Hornets. So that's going to be for the naval aviators. Uh, elements of the X-35 design were actually pioneered by the F-22 Raptor, which was the predecessor plane from Lockheed Martin, which we... Right. We found out was started. That, was, I didn't know it took... You, this. Yeah, we think of the F-22 as like, oh, that's kind of a flash in the pan. I didn't hear much about it yeah, because it got was, replaced by this. Yep. That had development starting back in like 82. Yeah, I had no idea it had been developed for that wild. 20 plus years. So the X-35A first flew on the 24th of October in 2000 and tested- When did we become aware of it as, as human beings? After 2000. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, Jake. You're a professional. Yes, Continue. I am. Uh, the air vehicle performance and handling characteristics were first tested. And as you'll find out, Cinco, our guest, was brought in the development of the plane later, where he actually pioneered some of the safety features for it. So that's a really, really basic understanding of what the F-35 is. It is the current fighter jet used by the U.S. Air Force. It's used by the Canadian Air Force. It's used by the Marine Corps. It's used by the Israelis. It's used by the English. It's used by the it's Swiss. It's used by our it's friends. By, this is, it is the it, worldwide allied aircraft. United States is like, yeah, it's good to know me. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. good to know me. You exactly. can get to fly one of these. So there are three of the U.S. services that use the F-35 and actually 13 international allies that we supply to and all use the F-35 around the world. I wonder if there's like a secret kill switch. Like if someone just like some country that we let fly around stabs us in the back, we, we have a little button where they just stop working. And you have 13 different <laughs> buttons based on which country? Yeah, yeah. There's yeah, yeah. like little colored little flags on each button. That exists. Yeah. They call it a backdoor. I bet that, I don't know why is it? Maybe we left the back door in all of them? No, maybe not. Maybe, maybe that's not. I'm, I'm thinking If we not. got caught doing that, that'd probably be pretty bad. Yeah. Regardless, let's move into our interview with Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton. Hey, is this Chris? This is. Chris, how are you, man? Good. How's it going? I'm doing well. Good to be uh, able to share with you some of my perspective, my bias perspective. Bias perspective? What do you mean, bias? Oh, <laughs> uh, we all have biases, you know. We do, we do. We all, well, I'm thinking yours all. is going to be pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, well, I definitely have some stories, I'll tell you that much. First question I have is, I, you know, everybody... Uh, has the has the name on their helmet? I think about Top Gun, right? When I was a kid, I always watched Top Gun. You had you had Viper and and Maverick and Goose, Goose and everything yeah. else. And and uh, I feel the need, the need 
And I would always, <laughs> when I was a kid, that was what always inspired me. And I and I gave myself a call sign and everything else like that. And I was a kid, and I would fly the plane around saying those words. And uh, but I see that you're Cinco. What is your, uh, your your Colonel Tucker Cinco Hamilton? Is that your call sign? Yeah, yeah, Cinco is my call sign. What is what is that? What does that mean? Where'd you get that? Yeah, you know, so call signs are um, are, are great. It's actually much easier to remember call signs because they're usually associated with some story or or they're natural, like they make sense with someone's name. Right. Um, I, I, you know, I got a a buddy that's um, you know, Scratch McNutt. His last name's <laughs> McNutt. <laughs> I got a buddy who's, you know, uh, his last name's Abel, so his call sign is Canaan, like Cain and Abel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah so there's some naturals. And then for everyone else, there are stories associated with something that we did uh, stupid in the plane, right? Like right. total brain fart, something that happened that we screwed up and uh, we get named for it. So it's funny you mentioned that you, you called yourself something. Uh, it's actually one of the first rules is you can never choose your own call sign. Like you have no part of that. You actually, if you mention what call sign you want to be called, they will make sure that you are not called <laughs> that's that. Not it's never that. <laughs> no, you know, that's not allowed. Not allowed. So yeah, Cinco came from uh, when I was a brand new uh, wingman in the F-15C back uh, in 2005 timeframe. Uh, I was on one of my first missions uh, while we were going down track and we were training to, to do something called offensive counter air, where we sweep out all the bad guys in front of us. And so I'm on my, I'm on my flight leads wing and we're going down track. Uh, we shoot our missiles at the bad guys and the bad guys are just, uh, other pilots in our squadron that are pretending to be bad guys that day. There's blue air, which is good guys and red air. So half the time we fly, we're, do you we're prefer red being air. the good guy or the bad guy in, in these situations? Yeah, the the blue air is always more fun. Okay. Uh, it's it's more intense, but it, it is more fun just because uh, you kind of get into it, right? You're you're in this moment, and you you really um, are trying to imagine, you know, red air are are legitimate bad guys coming after you because you you got to be ready for combat, right? So I'm blue air in this situation. We shoot our missiles. We turn sideways. It's called a notch maneuver. It just defeats missiles that are coming in at us, and we turn back in. But based on how the formation is set up. Um, and, and where I was in that formation where we turned sideways, when I turn back in, I'm out of position. So my flight lead is like, you know, two, where are you? I don't see you. And I was like, number one, I'm at your left, you know, seven o'clock position. So I'm, you know, back into his left, you know, five miles closing, which means I know you don't see me, but I see you and I'm going to get back in position. So I, I run back into position which is a few miles away. It's, it's still hard to see aircraft when you're in position because it's not like Top Gun. We don't fly that close to each other when we're <laughs> in, in combat, right? And so he still doesn't see me. He's like, two, I still don't see where you're at. And I'm like, one, I'm in your left nine o'clock now in position. He still doesn't see me. I move in closer to him. He's starting to get upset. I'm starting to get upset. I move into 3,000 feet, which is like way closer than you should be um, in a plane. And he's like, two, I just do not see you. I was like, one, I'm right at your left wing. With a flash, which means I'm rocking my wings back and forth because it's much easier to see a plane when they when they show you their wing. And I start flaring. And I'm just dropping flares. I'm like, <laughs> I'm right here. And there's a pause on the radio. He's like, two, are you flying off one of the bad guys we just killed out? <gasps> and I looked down on my scope. And when we turned sideways, he turned in, but I never did. I just saw the bad guy red air that I killed. And I just started flying off his wing completely the opposite direction. <laughs> And I'm like 80 miles, 100 miles away from my flight lead at this point. The red air pilot looks up at me because I'm so close he can see me. And he's shaking his head because he hears the whole thing, but he can't say anything about it. And so then 
I'm like, oh crap. And I plug it into five stages of afterburner. So uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco stages of afterburner to get back into formation, which is as fast as you can go in a fighter aircraft using afterburner. So I race back into position. And right as I get on his wing, I am out of gas because when you use afterburner, <laughs> you piss away all your gas. So then I immediately have to go back to the base. And he was furious and they called me Cinco, uh, which is, you know, stuck is my call sign for running around in five stages of AB for too long. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. And no, when you were flying up next to the uh, the red aircraft, you didn't like turn over and take a Polaroid picture of him or anything like that. <laughs> I should have inverted for G inverted. No, no. So That's, you've done uh, a lot of work with the with the F thirty five, and I kind of want to talk about some experimental aircraft stuff, which you are you're an expert on. What did you, what was your role in bringing the F thirty five from a CAD drawing to the the fire it is today? Yeah, you know, I started my F thirty five journey um, really uh, on the periphery as a test pilot, knowing what was going on, and kind of being annoyed by the, the the big airplane on the block that was taking up all of our money, right, and everyone else was getting involved with. And then I, um, I got intimately involved as I moved from being an F-15C and F-15E test pilot uh, to being the programmatic lead uh, for development on the F-35. So I moved to uh, D.C. and I was assigned at the Joint Program Office and I was doing acquisition, basically, uh, basic acquisition work for the F-35 program, where I was the DT lead of the F-35 program, which meant I monitored all of the developmental testing that was going on. Uh, for the Navy, the Marines, and the Air Force at two different test sites. You have Edwards Air Force Base in California, which is Air Force, and you have Patuxent River Naval Air Station in Maryland, which is the Navy and the Marines. So I was I was supporting them, making sure they get what they needed to, to deliver capability. So at this point, I just got involved with making sure that uh, we were able to conduct the, the test flying that was required to prove the F-35 was going to work. So mind you, as, as a developmental test pilot, our job is to make sure that the aircraft meets contractual specifications. So if in the contract, um, the Air Force signs with Lockheed Martin that the F-35 will uh, find an enemy target at 60 miles, right? We are going to go up airborne. We're going to create a flight test and we're going to prove that we can find another enemy aircraft at 60 nautical miles. So that's the job of developmental test pilots. Um, now, mind you, there are uh, like 73,000 test points that we have to go after in the F-35 program. Um, and each one of them was m way more complicated than simply finding another aircraft at 60 nautical miles. But uh, Well, there had to have been a lot beyond... of stress testing and stuff like that, too. Like, what is this thing exactly. actually capable of? Right. So a part of our, our job, too, was making sure that um, that the aircraft could handle the, the G-forces, that it could fly as fast as it was supposed to fly. You know, when we signed on and we said the F-35 is a 1.6 mock aircraft, 700 KCAS, means we had to go to these points. We needed to have test pilots go to these points and make sure that the aircraft performed the way that it should at those points. So I was in charge of making sure that we were doing all the flight tests appropriately and safely uh, within our budget, the flight test budget, in order to deliver capability. And, and that was before I ever got to the cockpit. So was this thing uh, preceded by the F-117? Was the was that the stealth aircraft before the F-35? No, the F-117, the Nighthawk, was really the first uh, stealth aircraft, um, and and everyone knows of it from Gulf Storm, Gulf Storm One, right? right. Uh, Desert Storm One, pardon me, um, because uh, it's kind of unveiled at that point. Uh, the aircraft that uh, came after that was the the B-2. 
um, and the F-22. And the F-35 is now the, the generation beyond the F-22 uh, with stealth capability. So that's kind of the progression of the different stealth aircraft that we have in the U.S. So when you guys are doing testing up there, do you guys do live testing? Or is it kind of, you know, like the like the blue-red game that you were talking about? Do you ever use live uh, live missiles and stuff like that from ground to test the stealth? Because obviously you want to know if this thing is really going to work versus a live missile. Oh, yeah. No, absolutely. So, yeah, our job as developmental testers uh, is to, to prove the, the system uh, fully, right? So there's different types of testing we do. One is called flight science testing, and that is the interaction of the airframe with the atmosphere. So can it fly at 1.6 Mach? Can it go pull 9Gs in the F-35A? It's the 9G limit. The other uh, airframes have different G limit. You know, so can it what's do your the, those G limit? I mean, when you think about the plane's G limit being nine, what's yours as a person? Well, humans uh, are the limiting factor, actually, in fighter aircraft. Um, and most humans can't go over nine. That's why we have a limit of nine. You can go up to 9.510 once you're trained or even higher. Um, I probably could not do that. Uh, my body, a lot of it is just the way your body's made. Um, and by the way, like women pull G's better than men typically, uh, because it depends on your heart's trying to pump blood to different parts of your body. And so ultimately you're trying to keep blood from getting out of your head, uh, because when that happens, you black out and we call it G lock. Um, but I would say like, if I were to take you and put you up into a fighter aircraft and you've never flown in a fighter aircraft, you'd probably be very uncomfortable at around three G forces and like in pain at around six G forces and passed out shortly thereafter. <laughs> so it, it takes a lot of training to get up to the nine G's that we would have to do, uh, in the fighter aircraft. So with some of the bravado that comes with all this stuff, I think people sometimes forget that flying this stuff is, is, is pretty dangerous. And you had a you had a crash in an F-15, right? Yeah. Yeah. Back in 2008, I was uh, actually, uh, yeah, anniversary's coming up. It was February 20th of 2008. Yep. What was the what was the story behind that? Yeah, you know, it was um, it, it's one of those things we're doing a training mission. So we're out there doing. Uh, high aspect uh, dogfighting, high aspect what we call BFM, basic fighter maneuvers. Um, and my wingman and I were uh, going up against each other, if you will. Like we, no one, there wasn't a red air and a blue air in that scenario. We were just going to to train. And the idea is you want to get to a position of advantage. So high aspect BFM is where you meet each other like beak to beak. You pass each other, and then the fight is on right as you pass each other. And you're trying to get to a place where someone is in a, a position of advantage on the other aircraft. And man, I'll tell you, there, there are some serious limits on uh, perception of three-dimensional space that a human uh, can figure out, basically, when you're moving at the speeds that we're moving at. And we found ourselves in a, a position where, um, you know, we perceived uh, some clearance and we were wrong, right? Like it happened so quickly. Uh, you know, one thing that I, I tell people is right before our collision, um, we're doing these circles kind of back and forth towards each other, trying to, it's it's hard over the phone uh, to describe them, but we're basically making arcs over the sky and they're, they're circles, you know, and we merge and we circle back towards each other again. And the, the, the circle before the collision were 5,300 feet from impact, um, which is um, seven seconds from impact. And at 3,000 feet from impact, there's nothing either of us could have done to avoid the collision because of just physics. You're moving so fast, hundreds of miles an hour. Um, and so we didn't perceive the collision uh, was going to happen. And I remember, you know, I'm watching this thing unfold. Uh, and by the time my mind is like, this is uncomfortable or like, this doesn't look right. It's too late. Uh, and so, yeah, man, we, uh, we collided, 
uh, at around 400, 500 mile an hour, um, you know, uh, closure towards each other. And I, uh, I, I kind of at the last second really knew that this was going to be close. And, and um, I, I tried to roll up and pull away, but it was too late. And, and then I, I lose my vision when I, um, uh, I'm, I'm like tumbling through the sky. I've lost my vision. Uh, I, I would not say I blacked out because I remember everything. So it's what we call graying out. You lose your uh, vision, but not your consciousness. And when I get my vision back a few seconds later, I remember like, dude, it's not a fluid memory at all. Completely like time compression, all that, just snippets of a memory. Um, I remember like trying to reach for the stick, but I, I, I couldn't feel anything from the aircraft and I'm stuck up in my seat because I'm tumbling through the sky and I look up and um, we have uh, uh, fire lights that are going off and I'm trying to reach down for a throttle to turn off an engine. Um, my mind is just like, you know, not with it. And then um, I finally, I look up and I, I recognize we have three rear view mirrors in the F-15C and do completely engulfed in flames, the aircraft. So at this point, I, um, I reach down, I pull the ejection handles and I, I get out of the aircraft. Uh, I'm under parachute. So this like complete massive disorientation of a collision to now eerie silence. I am floating under my parachute and my mind is just like in a dream state, like what just happened? And, and I go uh, look up and I start going through the checklist, um, which is canopy visor, mass secret, LPU four line sear. That's the, the checklist we use when you eject. And dude, my mind is like, I, I start the checklist, but I'm, I can't finish any part of it. So canopy, I keep just saying the checklist out loud, canopy visor, mass secret, LPU four line sear, canopy visor, but I'm not doing anything. And so then I start finally doing things, right? I check my canopy. It's your parachute canopy, canopy visor, mass secret. And now I check my, my visor. And now I have to check my canopy again. Now I check my visor again. Now I check my canopy again, right? You just see this, like your mind is not with it. And then I finally get to the point where a seat kit, there's a seat kit we sit on that's in our seat in fighter aircraft that if you eject or with you, it has all your survival equipment. Dude, when I got to the seat kit portion of the checklist, I accidentally detached my entire seat kit. So now I don't have any survival equipment. And I did that. It's a negative transfer bias. When you emergency ground egress from a fighter aircraft and you get to seat kit in the checklist, you detach your seat kit. When you're in ejection situation, you do not. You just make sure that it's there. But my mind was so out of it. I just muscle memory detached my seat kit when I got to that part of the checklist. I hit the, the, the Gulf of Mexico, the waters in the 60s. I'm freezing right away, six foot waves. It's in the afternoon. Um, and dude, I have nothing except for my life preserver unit around my neck. Um, and I have my G suit that I'm able to fill up with air manually to try to get my legs up. And I'm sitting there, dude, I think I'm going to die. Uh, I'm there for a, a while. Um, they start searching for me. I see them searching for me really far away. They never see me. Um, and then it just so happens that a 25 foot fishing vessel that was 70 miles south of Panama City, out for the day on a fishing trip, um, in six-foot waves, just happened upon me in the Gulf of Mexico as it uh, as we approached uh, dusk. That's divine, man. Wow. Yeah. I mean... And so, <laughs> yeah, like, what do you say other than you, when you go through an experience like that, it makes you think about your life. It makes you think about your priorities, what you're living for, what's important to you. Um, I thought I was going to die. And I, I didn't. You know, like, I survived this uh this this horrible accident and at the same time my my wingman he he died he, he perished and uh a friend of mine an amazing wingman and you know how do you live with that as you move forward um 
And what I've tried to do, and the, the arc of the story, so I think it's actually an important arc, is you don't know what life is going to bring you next, right? So for me, um, I continued to fly a little bit, but I, I moved on to another assignment I was already scheduled to, to go to. Um, moved on to the next assignment. How do and you, then do, I how do you a, move on? Like, I mean, how do you get back into a plane again? It's just, yeah. that stuff must be just going through your mind and and it must oh, yeah. take a lot of, you know, grit to be able to do that. Well, you know, resiliency is an important skill that I think a lot of people um, don't reflect on and think about. Uh, and and I think that it's important to reflect on your life and recognize how we have been resilient to give us confidence and strength and understanding in typical, difficult situations. And I'll tell you, man, getting back in the plane was, it, it was kind of like Maverick and Top Gun is, is as much as I don't necessarily like to relate myself to that movie, but you know, like it is hard getting back in. Um, I had to fly with um, certain pilots right away and it, it was never comfortable. And I've always, I've always felt like it has impacted my dogfighting skills for sure. Um, and it, it just impacts your confidence. Like, dude, this was a mistake. This was a mistake, uh, a genuine mistake on both of our parts, but a mistake nonetheless. And so how do you move on from those moments of failure in your life? Because dude, it, that's exactly what, this is just a moment of failure. And so how do we move on? Um, you know, and how do we honor the memory of those that couldn't move on? And that's where my story like is very serendipitous is I go to test pilot school like three years after this accident. I find myself in a test pilot school class where we do projects. Uh, we, we begin at the beginning of your year. It's a master's degree program. And it's kind of like your thesis or dissertation, big project you, you take all the way through. Um, and it just so happens that one of the four projects that they have us go on, so teams of like six people go on these four projects, was the first ever automatic air collision avoidance system. So it was meant for fighter aircraft where the fighter aircraft are talking to each other, the aircraft. They know when there's going to be a collision and they avoid each other at the last possible second to save the aircraft from the collision. And the the, the system was brand new and I was a part of a small team that was the first ever to fly and test this technology, uh, which is amazing, right? Because I could bring to bear my passion my energy, my voice to this important technology, which by the way now, because I got connected in with that technology, I got connected in with a team called the Automatic Ground Collision Avoidance Team. And that's a system where the plane knows it's gonna hit the ground and automatically recovers the plane um, and the pilot before that, that collision happens. So I'm just thinking, I'm imagining now, there's two scenarios with the ground collision system is the guy just like, well, we're just gonna fly this thing at the ground and see if it works. And the other one is, we're just gonna play chicken with these two planes and see if this system works. Is that kind of, I mean, you just have to try it at some point, right? Yeah, you, you test the system. So the way we did it was- Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of it is pretty intense, man. We, we, uh, the ground collision avoidance stuff, we have to fly around at 100 feet and make sure that the system worked and didn't go off when we didn't want it to go off. Because that's a the big thing with those systems is number one, do no harm. You cannot have those systems kill the pilot, right? right? Make a wrong error, do something where um, it, it puts a pilot in a situation they can't recover we from. Could almost, so you're right. We could almost delve into a little bit of autonomous car, do no harm type of thing yeah. there too. It's the same type yeah. of concept. Yeah, exactly. And so I was in the, because of automatic air collision avoidance work, I became very close with the automatic ground collision avoidance team. And because of that relationship, when I got to the F-35, me and my test pilots were like, 
listen, we have to accelerate when automatic ground collision avoidance is going to get into the F-35. Because at, at the time, it was, was not supposed to get into the system until 2025 or 2027, somewhere around there. And this was a few years ago now. We're like, we have got to accelerate that. And then we went through a very intense period where we got the approval and then flight tested and put out into the fleet uh, F-35 automatic ground collision avoidance. And then we won the Collier Trophy for our effort along with the uh, other efforts of the F-16s and other folks doing auto GCAS. But dude, this was all, this all came from a, uh, you know, a failed uh, person sitting in the Gulf of Mexico wondering how I was going to um, move on with my life. And now looking back, it's this beautiful arc that I, I'll tell you, had I never been in that accident, have never tested automatic air collision avoidance, um, I would have never been in a position to bring about automatic ground collision avoidance for the F-35 seven years early like we did. That's, right? an, that's an awesome story. I mean, every kind of, of of progress that seems important like that always has like an impetus. And it sounds like that was a really important thing to you. Yeah. And no, everybody absolutely. else, all the lives that have been saved by, you know, the, the ground clearance and the air collision stuff. Yeah. Auto GCAS so far has saved in the F-16, Auto GCAS has saved 10 um, pilots and nine aircraft. Well, I suppose you and can see when it interjects, when it when it actually modifies oh, yeah. the flight plan. You can just boom, it did it right yeah. there. That's a that's a life saved. Yeah. One of the biggest things we had to deal with was um, the pilot community, uh, as with many communities, when there's change or something new, especially when autonomy is brought into the, the factor, the equation, um, they push back. You know, they, they did not want to be hindered um, in their mission, and they felt like they knew better than what the technology was going to allow them to execute. Um, and they were wrong, right? But I, I don't necessarily blame them, but I think that we need to understand technology and we need to understand how we implement it. And we need to be, uh, we need to be of the mindset that if done correctly, it can uh, save lives and it, it can help us, you know, be better operators. For sure. And I want to, I know we're running out of time here. I want to ask kind of one more question. What is, what are your thoughts on the, um, the transition that we're kind of seeing from uh, the experimental aircraft that are coming out that are unmanned versus that are this, this, this hypersonic stuff that's coming out, which obviously humans can't even be in those uh, versus, you know, the kind of stuff that, you know, the F-35 and everything like that is, are we seeing like a transition towards unmanned completely, or are we going to still have pilots and airplanes? Well, I mean, this is all my opinion now, so none of this is the official, you know, stance of the Air Force or anything like that. Sure. In my opinion, um, I think you need pilots in the cockpit, and I think you will see pilots in the cockpit. Um, I think you will have definitely an expansion of unmanned uh, autonomy. Um, but I do think that when it comes to dropping the bomb, shooting the missile, shooting the gun, uh, you're going to need someone that is making that decision. So right now, even like a, a, a Reaper, right? When they're shooting a Hellfire or dropping munitions, like there is a pilot, a person that is responsible for that decision ultimately. Right. Um, the problem is going to become if you try to give that power to a computer system as if if you see this type of tank, you are cleared to drop on it, right. right? Like that type of programming that you put into that system, um, I don't think we're that we should be doing right now. I think that we need as a society to have the conversation of the ethical implications of allowing autonomous, uh, you know, weapon delivery, if you will. Well, that's, we're talking about the T-1000. That's Skynet, right? <laughs> yeah. That's Judgment Day written right all over it. Now I've seen the the Chinese have been coming out with these drone swarms, these semi-autonomous drone swarms that have these, this AI concept stuff that they're doing. That kind of freaks me out. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's too bad. You know, AI is an interesting, uh, you know, subject to bring up too, just because a lot of people don't understand artificial intelligence. So I, we, we're not talking the T-1000. We're not talking, <laughs> Skynet. you know, we're not talking swarming. You guys aren't uh, trying to become self-aware over there at the Air Force? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, we're not talking about like black mirror bees that are going to go after people. You know, like artificial intelligence is really a tool um, that can be used and is, is best used in autonomous systems typically. Um, but it's really just a tool of being able to sift through data and and help humans, you know, better understand the data that's in front of them. Um, and so what we're working on here for the Air Force is really uh, ethical, safe development and integration of artificial intelligence into systems that are, are for the public good, right? Like I'm not working, we're not working on weaponizing AI. Um, what we're working on here is how do we take data and how do we allow a computer system, a computer algorithm to help us use that data to make smarter, better decisions, more integrated, uh, more integrated uh, into decision makers' lives, basically. And I think um, it's fine as long as there's a the index finger of a human or the thumb on the red button. You know, as long yeah. as that's the inevitable choice is ours, I think yeah. we're I think we'll be OK. Well, and a key too, Chris, is, you know, making sure that we create AI that's explainable um, and robust, but explainable for sure. A lot of times it's a black box, right? We don't understand a deep neural network. We don't understand all that is going into it. So we need to make sure that we can uh, understand the algorithm and how it's employing itself, how it's changing, if it is changing. Uh, and then ultimately that we have the control um, over the, the changes that are going on. That sounds right. terrifying to me. <laughs> it, well, just right. having it explained that way, like we need to be able to understand how the artificial intelligence is learning. We need to be able to track its its neural process of, of the information that it's aggregating and then somehow understand what it has learned so we can not be screwed over and, <laughs> and have be judgment day. It, that kind of stuff scares me a lot. Yeah, well, it, hopefully it shouldn't because the, the idea of general AI which is what you see in a lot of movies that's dramatized. You know, we are so far. People do not understand how far we really are from that future, uh, if ever. But we are very close to needing AI to help us in just regular day-to-day -day things. I mean, it's already helping us. Like, how do you get around with your Google Maps or Waze, right? Like, AI is helping you select routes as you go through. So it's, it's really those minor steps. And I always worry that people are so afraid of this idea of general AI, which is really so far off, if ever attainable, so far away. But they're so afraid of that that we don't recognize the need to implement some of these other really smart AI algorithms in our day-to-day -day lives that are important. If you want to talk about um, maybe the contrast between what guys used to do back in the day with experimental aircraft and what you ended up doing with F-35, that could be an interesting topic as well. Yeah. No, that's a good point. Um, you know, one thing you mentioned earlier is do we do live fire missiles or do we live things like so I can kind of take that and, and talk about it a little bit more, which I think will also or if you have any stories questions. on flying and being in the F-35. And I know you've flown, I mean, a, a lot of aircraft. How many aircraft? It says it's 30 different types of aircraft. And you talk yeah. about, you know, what's your favorite aircraft to fly if we could maybe, you know, hit some of those topics? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, All right, so so I'll start let with... me just phrase the question and then we'll, we'll go from there. Yeah, shoot. So what was the, you know, some of the guys back in the day, when you think of, we did an episode on Chuck Yeager back in the day, and he's talking about using a stick to close the door because he broke his back with a, you know, all this different stuff, and they're getting dropped out of planes, and it was really kind of cowboy, right? It was really, really high risk, really high reward, 
is 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 that different than what you guys do now or is there still you know with the risk involved what what's the contrast between being an experimental aircraft you know 50 years ago versus today well i'll tell you i think it's very different <laughs> you know like i i um applaud you know the people that have been before as test professionals and the risks that they had to take um the challenges they're up against uh the technology uh, just was not where it's at today, right? It, just the evaluation of the system before you ever flew uh, was not around, right? They had to go out. They had to just go see how the flight dynamics worked once they got in the plane, which is very scary. Uh, I would say immense risk. Um, you know, we nowadays have the ability to use CFD, so computational fluid dynamics and other computer models that are going to allow us to know with a fairly good degree of certainty that we're going to be safe, right? We're not going to go do something that um, that we think is going to kill us as a pilot. Right. I don't think they can say the same back then, man. I, I think that it was, it really was uh, a very, uh, very much unknown. So for me, going on my missions, even high risk missions, we know where the risk is. We know how to mitigate the risk. We work together very closely as a team. We have a huge support network behind us. You know, as I go up on a test mission, I'll have a room of 20 people in a control room that are monitoring every one of my parameters. You got a propulsion person, you have, um, you know, someone watching my flight dynamics, you have someone watching my weapons, you have someone on the radio with me and so on over there, right? So it's just this huge team sport. Um, and once again, we have uh, quite a bit of knowledge beforehand of what really is going to be uh, the, the riskier moments. Uh, I, see, I, I kind of see this parallel between back in the 60s and 70s, you had Formula One. And it yeah. seems like in Formula One, every race, somebody was dead. Just because yeah. there is, there's no technology, there's no safety, there's no oversight. But these guys, I don't think the, I don't think the men are any different. I just think that it, you just don't have to take the risk anymore. That used to be completely necessary because you've got all that technology that you talked about. Yeah. No, you know, it is, um, I think that's a fair comparison because back in the day they were losing test pilot, like a test pilot a week, um, you know, doing some of the missions they're doing. And that's a huge resource now, to lose, you know, if, just in terms of obviously we, if you take the humanity out of it, it's always terrible to lose a, a person, an individual, a human being, but for the air force as a, as cause pilots are a resource. If you, if you kind of boil it down and just like a tank driver is a, a resource or an infantryman is a resource, it's all the, you know, a military resource to go and do their job. And if you're losing that resource, that's hard on them to train new pilots and, and bring in and bring in new skills. It seems like if you, if you're losing one every week, at some point, your test pilots aren't going to be as good as the ones that, you know, died. Absolutely. I think our, I think the most important resource we have are the people. Right. And that's one thing that I always uh, I fear people um, lose track of. Right. Like we, we have got to take care of our people. We need to train them effectively. Uh, we need to uh, ensure that we're giving them all the opportunities to be as safe as possible so they can continue to, you know, live their lives and contribute. Uh, so, yeah, it, being a test pilot nowadays, I'd say is very different. Um, while I was on high risk missions and while some things have happened to me, that most people don't deal with. And mind you, yes, I understand completely. Uh, my my day-to-day -day life as a test pilot is riskier than most people, but I think relative to test pilots before us, it's much safer. Well, and I've been on, on the way to the studio today. There was a lot of <laughs> yeah, drivers exactly. out there. It's <laughs> just saying. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we talked about my collision, but you know, another 
uh, harrowing moment was when um, I was giving a, I was in a, a F-15D now. So in the back seat, F-15C, there's a few F-15Ds that are, that are, are meant for training. Uh, and we have them for tests too. So we can have flight test engineers in the back seat while the pilots did stuff in the front seat. So I was flying around in the back seat, giving an incentive flight, or um, I think that's what we call it, an incentive flight at the time, uh, for a helicopter pilot um, in the front seat. So I basically was allowing him to learn how to fly the F-15 to give him one flight of like, this is what it's like. He was a test pilot too, but he was a helicopter test pilot. So we're flying around. That's going to um, take some balls to get into a, into a plane with someone that's never flown the plane before. I mean, kudos. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that well, takes something. Yeah. Balls. They, they trained us how to be good instructors, you know, from the back sure, seat. Sure. Um, so we're flying around with a strike Eagle, um, as our wingman. And we're just showing them like, this is dogfighting. These are some test maneuvers that we do. And then we rejoin with my wingman at the end of the mission uh, to do what we call a battle damage check to make sure their plane looks good. And my wingman is missing a rudder. So we're like, <laughs> hey, dude, uh, don't freak out or anything, but you're missing one of your tails. And he was like, oh, oh, I see that now. Yes, I'm missing a rudder. Um, luckily, in an F-15, there are two rudders. So it happens it just uh, very off. rarely. It happens. It fell off. Yeah. <laughs> so where we come back around. Excuse me, Lockheed. Beep, boop, boop. Uh, one of your rudders <laughs> fell off. Can we make sure that <laughs> yeah. doesn't happen again? Exactly. We come back around and we drop him off. Like we're just on his wing, make sure everything's safe and he lands. And then we're pr pretty much out of gas. Our mission's over. And we're like, all right, uh, helicopter pilot. Dude, this will be your one landing. Like, you know, we we talked about it in your two hours of academics that I gave you earlier today. Um, and you're just going to come back around and you'll land and I'll try to help you out from the back seat. I have I can't see from the back seat in a F-15D or F-15C. There's no way for me to see anything out front of me. So you just kind of learn looking at the periphery on the side of how things are going. I, I mean, I have airspeed indicator and altitude indicator, but I can't actually see what's this going on. This isn't like driver's education where there's like another steering yeah. wheel on the other side <laughs> and like a brake and a gas pedal where <laughs> yeah. you can just kind well, of take do. over. You, you actually do have the stick and you have the throttle. So that's okay. good. You just can't physically see anything and you don't have a heads up display in the back. So, which we rely upon. So either way, we, we come back around, we're low on gas. So this need to be our one landing and he touches down and it was a fine landing, but it was super weird. Like it felt like we busted a tire or something like one of the wings dropped. So I immediately from the back seat plugged into the five stages of AB and took, took off again. And I was like, that's not good tower. What happened? Do you see anything? And the tower was like, yeah, it looks, looks like you may have blown one of your tires. I was like, all right, that's weird. Cause I'm showing um, that my gear looks good. I, all my indicators in the cockpit show that it looks good. And the tower's like, yeah, it looks like you blew a tire. Okay. So we're going to fly back around. We're running low on gas. I asked for a chase ship to come back up and find me. So someone races into the pattern and they get on my wing and they're like, dude, your tire is totally fine. And now I'm like confused. Of all get out. I have no idea what's going on. Like collapsed landing gear or something? It, bingo, but we didn't know that. So now <laughs> I'm out of gas. They're like, listen, the procedure is you have to land in this 400-foot window while going at a 200 miles an hour. Hold on. This is like you're landing window. out at sea, you're telling me. No, no, no. We have to land on the runway oh, okay. to catch a okay. cable. So they're like, listen, drop your hook. You got to catch this cable. And you have to land within a 400 foot span in order to be successful in trying to catch the cable. And this right? is a guy, this is a helicopter pilot flying the plane that has no, <laughs> has, this is yeah. his first experience. Yeah. So now I'm <laughs> flying from the back seats 
And I'm like, dude, you need to tell me what's going on because I can't see anything in the front seat. And I have to land in this 400 foot zone that I can't see. Like I can't see it out in front of me. So then we, I don't know how, you know, praise the Lord. I sit there and I land in this 400 foot landing zone, which was a miracle in itself. And our left wing slams down on the runway and our gear collapses. And then we rocket into the cable at 200 miles an hour. And our hook just fortunately grabs the cable and it brings us to a rest. We'll come to find out. Well, of course, we emergency ground egress out of the aircraft to shut the engines off. We run off to the side. And I look to the front seat pilot, you know, the helicopter pilot now standing next to me on the runway as, uh, you know, fire trucks are running in. I was like, dude, your landing was so hard. You collapsed our gear. And he just was like stark white, like, oh, crap. And I was like, no, I'm just kidding with you, man. You're totally fine. It was probably a little bit too early to joke about that. But um, <laughs> what was his call sign? Did he get a new one after that? <laughs> no, 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 he shouldn't. But dude, our landing gear showed totally good. It was a problem in the F-15. Um, but it collapsed on landing and, uh, it's happened like five times, uh, that I knew of. And three of those times the pilots, um, departed the aircraft and had to eject where the plane starts like cartwheeling. So we were very fortunate to be able to bring that in safely. And it was a huge team effort because he was helping me out from the front seat, telling me things that I couldn't see. But yeah, that's once again, another opportunity for me to, uh, to tell you that my job's not risky, even though <laughs> You flew some combat missions in Afghanistan, right? Yeah, I have about 450 hours flying in combat. So what's the, I, do you feel different out there when you're doing the combat missions versus the experimental stuff? Is, the, is it more yeah. emotional or are you just kind of, it's just level-headed all the time? Well, I tell you, I try to be level-headed all the time. I think that's actually important for a test pilot to try to be. Right. Um, I flew... Uh, and I actually stood up an ISR platform in combat. So it was an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance airframe called the MC-12. And it was me and like 10 other people that were the first people in Afghanistan with this aircraft. Um, and we started flying combat missions. And our our job was what we call tactical ISR. So I was the eyes and the ears of the operators on the ground. Sure. So I'd be overhead of them for their convoys, looking out for IEDs, and overhead of them for compound uh, insertions and while they were trying to, uh, do their job, uh, you know, as, as combat troops on the ground. So it was very intense. And, and there are a lot of times where I needed to get the crew, uh, back in check because, uh, you're, you're in some very serious situations, right. And you cannot let emotions cloud, um, the decisions that you may have to make, right. Life, life and death decisions, uh, were an aspect of our job and you have to, you have to go about it emotionally or you're, you're going to kill yourself, kill other people um, or kill innocent people. You know, that'd be probably the worst uh, scenario. Um, so yeah, that was uh, very intense. And there were some intense moments for sure uh, doing that mission. And the guys on the ground, from what I can see, I've watched a lot of real combat footage and stuff like that. I kind of, I enjoy watching and kind of looking at all this stuff and uh, they really, really look up to you guys. I mean, when you're up there, they're always just cheering you guys on. I mean, you guys are it. Yeah. It's, it's, well, it's really special what you guys do, supporting everybody. Yeah. I think ultimately our hearts are with them, right? As I'm flying over the Korangal Valley, um, you know, and hearing them get attacked. And oh, man. When, when, they, when they key their mics, all, all you hear is bullets, right? All you hear is, is the sound of guns. And you're sitting up there. In, in my case, you know, I, I won't tell you what altitude, but we're sitting out there. Um, you know, watching and trying to protect them. And we're also, um, 
working with the fighter aircraft that were there. Mind you, I was an F-15C pilot, so we were not in combat, right? We're a single-seat air-to-air fighter. Um, so the one of the only ways for us to fly in combat was to fly another airframe as an F-15C guy. Um, but, you know, we're, su- we're being supported by the other fighters that are there, too. And, yeah, it's intense, but your heart is out with the, the warriors that are really getting shot at. Yeah, it's um, got to be tough being up there and, and just not really being able to do something. You just know something's happening, and you just can't. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are times where a a Chinook went down, everyone survived, but they were getting surrounded by enemy troops and were were in there trying to help them, like call out where the bad guys are at. And then on the radio or not the radio, but we're communicating with headquarters like uh, no one, no one high up, just like someone mid-level officer there that's telling us to to leave that area They're like you're not supposed to be there we didn't give you permission to be there and this person is calling us in from like a thousand miles away that has no idea what the situation is so you're dealing with both like this intense moment of trying to help the people on the ground and then this bureaucracy of someone that is totally disconnected from the fight trying to tell you your business when they were totally in the wrong to do that right so it, it could get frustrating and dramatic at times yeah do, do you ever kind of do you, do you fight with any guilt that you weren't able to do anything? Well, um, you weren't allowed no, to not do too anything, much. I, I, I would say. say that, no, typically I, we would just ignore the people telling us to leave, <laughs> right? Like if the, you know, that major or that captain was like, you're not supposed to be there. You need to RTB return to base. You know, immediately we would just shut down our computer and be like, we, we're not, we're basically not communicating with you. We're going to support this op as long as we can and we will leave uh, when we feel like it's appropriate. Do you have any other stories from Afghanistan that you want to share? You know, another one that comes to mind is um, it was May of 2010 and we were uh, out at our jet, the jet, the MC-12, it's a King Air 350, out at our aircraft about to do a a walk around and uh, we start getting mortared. And so we get mortared about like once a week back then um, maybe a little more. Typically, they would miss the base. Sometimes they would get someone, uh, sadly, um, and someone would die. But we would be we were get, getting attacked, basically. So a mortar went off. We're like, well, we better hurry up and get in the plane. And then we get in the plane, and we start hearing gunshots. And then we start hearing more mortars. We get our plane started up, and we start rolling out to the runway. Um, and then they shut down the airfield. So this is the largest attack that an enemy has ever had on um, a U.S. airfield since like, I want to say Vietnam, it may have been even earlier, where the Taliban like full up attacked uh, Bagram airfield, you can go look it up. And so they start attacking us. And we're like the next aircraft to take off. And they're basically telling us to like, go shut down, they shut down all the lights on the whole airfield. And we're like, we're going to take off because we have, uh, we have information on our aircraft that can help the fight, basically. And so we, uh, we take the runway and the tower uh, has to vacate because they're getting shot at. And so they're like, you can take off at your own risk, which is like a very rare thing that you would do in combat. Um, and so we take full responsibility and we run up our engines and we do this like Hayaka crazy takeoff in an MC-12, which isn't normal at all, just to avoid getting shot at. And we do like these crazy brake turn as the entire airfield goes dark. And then, um, yeah, we're, we're there then to support the, um, the aftermath of, of what happened. Um, but yeah, that was a pretty intense, uh, few moments. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at that. Aircraft. It doesn't seem at. like the most athletic thing. No, no, that's, <laughs> it's a tactical mission in a non-tactical airframe. Yeah. It looks like a, <laughs> looks like a commercial, you know, 
jet that you yeah. use to fly from Philadelphia to Boston or something. Yeah, dude, absolutely. So yeah, being able to to remember that you were in a non-tactical airframe with a tactical mindset was like key. And sadly, a lot of people forgot that. And there's been some tragedies, I think, um, related to to people not remembering they're not in a tactical aircraft. Yeah, just like the airframe strength and stall speeds and stuff like yeah. that kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, it's a C-12. It's like a little transport aircraft. Now, it has a lot of tactical capability, right? But it's not a tactical airframe, right? So pilots trying to think they could do too much with it um, and not realizing that, you know, uh, the benefit of the airframe was somewhere else, not in the way that it could pull Gs. <laughs> so one question that I've, I've kind of always wondered is, you have to kind of explain this to me like I'm a guy who's never been in anything but a like a Boeing 747 or a little puddle jumper. What is it like to fly something like an F-35? Explain it to me like I've, I don't even know what it is. What is it like to, to pilot that and, and the emotions and the physical feeling of, of that speed and that power? It is really hard to, it's really hard to communicate to someone what that is really like. Right. Because you could say, have you ever driven really fast, for instance? Right. Have you ever gone over 120 miles like driving around? Um, some people have. Right. And so only in Mexico. A... <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, maybe on the Autobahn, you know, in my there Honda Odyssey rock in uh, Germany when we lived there going 100 miles an hour. Um, but, yeah, it's hard to explain the speed to people. Um, now, of course, people get it because they, they fly commercial airliners and they're like, OK, I get speed. I'm going you're going like 0.88 Mach, you know, in your 747, 737. Um, but you're up at 30, 40,000 feet and you really can't tell you're going that fast unless you pass a cloud. Um, so the real intense stuff is trying to explain to someone like when you're low to the ground and going fast and the speed at which you need to make decisions and how you need to make sure that your attention is definitely always moving from different aspects of the platform to keep you safe, right? You can't just channelize your attention on one thing. You need to always have a very fast, what we call cross-check. So, you know, when you're in an F-35, for instance, you're in just this beautiful machine that has amazing technology. You have a touch screen in front of you. You have this helmet that is giving you amazing augmented reality. I mean, it giving you video of 360 degree view around your aircraft, allowing you to look through the aircraft. Um, you know, giving you a lot of situational awareness of what's going on. Uh, you know, you have the uh, the smoothness of just. I was going to say, I suppose rocking. a Hyundai has that. You know, when you look at the little screen on the thing, you can see all the way around the car. <laughs> Why wouldn't fighter planes have that too? Yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same thing. You're right. So a Hyundai, it's like driving a Hyundai. I, I think you got it. Yeah. No, like even describing to someone like pulling G's, like unless you've been in a centrifuge and you've been pulling G's in a centrifuge or has been in a plane that, you know, pulls G's, you can't describe to someone what it's like. Because even in a roller coaster, you pull like two to three G's, maybe even intense roller coasters. You're not pulling that many G's in the same fashion that you're pulling G's when you're maneuvering around a three, in three-dimensional space, right? Because there's different G-forces act on your body in different ways. No, no, so no. So it's really hard you to You can't tell me you it. haven't been on the Gravitron at the State <laughs> Fair. You know, the Gravitron where you lay on it, it spins, and you stick to the wall. I, yes. I've, <laughs> I've exactly. felt some G-forces here, man. Come on. Yeah, but that's – no, Chris, that's exactly the – that's the perfect point. Those are lateral G-forces. So people have no idea, like – your, what is happening to your body in the Gravitron, which thank you for bringing back so many good memories, is 
Blood Don't you remember like pushed. flipping upside down and yeah. like turning your body over and over while it was going? Oh, yeah. so great. So the blood is getting pushed from your chest to your back, right? So the idea is you want to keep blood in your head when you're flying around, but you're not dealing with that when you're dealing with lateral G's, like the Gravitron, that's lateral G's. What you can't really replicate is when you're pulling the G's that go from your head down to your feet, right? Because that is what is pulling the blood out of your head and will cause you to black out. Or even more painful is when blood goes from your feet to your head and you will red out. So I've done negative 4G loops before in aerobatic planes. And that's like, that's some pretty intense stuff because your body cannot deal with negative G's very well because they'll, it'll burst, um, it'll burst stuff in your brain and kill you. Well, that doesn't sound good. Yeah. So it's hard. I mean, ultimately it's really hard for me to explain. Like it's a very slick, uh, machine that, how do you tell someone, let, me, let me ask this when I'm yeah. sitting in a 747 and they take, or whatever, smaller planes than that. Uh, and you're taking off at the runway, what kind of thrust am I feeling compared to what you feel when you're taking off, say, from an aircraft carrier or something like that? Um, well, aircraft carrier is probably very intense. I have never taken off from an aircraft carrier. I have, I've flown on the F-35B and C, but we didn't, the Air Force pilots didn't touch the aircraft carrier because that's not our, that's not our jam. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, I think um, it's, it's somewhat similar. Yeah. You get thrown back into your seat a little bit. But I can still uh, read a magazine. Be, I'm still kind of looking at like the stuff I yeah. can buy on the store of the, that's all <laughs> yeah. overpriced as as we're taking off. You're not able to do that, I'm imagining. No, it's not. Um, you can. It's not that intense on the takeoff, right? I think it, it'd be like accelerating in a um, in a sports car, right? Zero to sixty in a few seconds. Sure. Right. Like that's probably the same. You get thrown back a little bit. You get a little lateral g forces on your chest. That kind of push you back. So you're talking um, more but, about like the direction changes up, down, left, right that are just instantaneous yeah. that would just spin my head upside down. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. That's what people don't understand is the, those the G forces that are acting in different fashion. The, the real intensity comes when you're flying down and the test missions we would do, uh, especially for like the ground collision avoidance, we'd be at 100 feet at 600 miles an hour. Uh, pulling up to nine G's as we go around turns and go through uh, canyons. And we would do that to make sure that I could still do a low level uh, mission being that low to the ground and the system wouldn't turn on when it shouldn't. I um, mean, that is when you really feel intense um, speed and you need to be super careful, right? Because if you put your, um, if, if you dive like a tenth of a degree below the horizon in that situation, you'll die within a, a second or two or a few, a few seconds just based on how fast you're going. So you have always got to be aware of where you are when you're at 100 feet maneuvering around. Yeah, well, I've seen that on Independence Day where they're flying through the canyons trying to get away from the aliens and none of the aliens understand that. They they all go less than that one degree and crash into the, into the ground. Yeah, no, once again, I mean, really great pull from uh, popular culture. Very, very much like flying an alien ship around. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. I think we're going to let you go. I really appreciate you hanging out with us today. It's been awesome. Yeah, no, thank you. Uh, happy to share my biased uh, perspective. Yeah, thanks, man. Take care of yourself and stay safe out there. All right. Thanks, Chris. Take care. Yeah, bye-bye. That was fucking awesome. You know what else is awesome? 
Oberk Car Care. Oberk is your source for professional detailing compounds and supplies that is researched, tested, and developed by professional detailers themselves. This is akin to Cinco being the one that's developing the projects for the airframe yes. because he's the pilot himself. These are detailers that are actually uh -huh. developing the products. I like it. These guys are passionate about detailing and know firsthand what makes a good product. And they truly are great products. I love it. It's a simple, foolproof, two-step process. It's easy, and it gives great results. Right now, they're offering a whopping 20% off your next order when you use the code OVERCREST. The discount code is good not only on OVERCARCARE.com, but also on DetailedImage.com and CarSuppliesWarehouse.com. Go check them out today. All right. I think next week we're going to do, I think we're going to do the SR71 next week. Okay. And I have uh, Buzz Carpenter. Buzz, yes. Buzz Carpenter, who ended up being the, the the Black Ops or Black World Administrator in charge of the Black World for the Air Force until 2013. I can tell you right now, this dude flew the SR-71 a lot. He's got some great stories. You guys aren't going to want to miss this one. I'm really looking forward to sharing it with you. Um, and I guess we're going to see you on Friday. That's right. We'll see you then. Take care. <laughs>